0: several times in our life, I mean, even starting in elementary school, right, the, the dreaded dodgeball game, right, you, 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 the, the captains get chosen, and, and there you are, you're standing, and you're hoping that you're the first pick, right, everybody wants to be the first pick, but you don't want to be the last pick, because if you're the last pick, that lets everybody know that you're unwanted and that you're unwelcome, that you're the worst person on the team. It's almost like, you know, there you are standing, everyone else has been picked, and there the, you know, the, the dodgeball captain is looking at you going, well, I guess I'm stuck with you. And as you grow older and uh, move on into high school, being excluded or the feeling of, of being unwanted only grows, doesn't it? In in my high school, the the lunchroom essentially established the social class. So as you walked in there, depending on what table you sat down at, uh, decided what rank you were. (laughs) You you were excluded from some tables. You were unwanted at some tables. And so despite my physical physique, uh, I actually was not an athlete. Shocking, I know. So I was excluded from some of those tables. I was unwanted at some of those tables. And 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 in high school, you discovered there are different social groups that you kind of want to be a part of, but you're excluded. You're unwanted. You're unwelcome. You you realize there's clubs and and all sorts of things and, and activities that you want to be included in. Yet sometimes you felt yourself being excluded. And and as you got older, and and, and maybe you uh, you know graduate high school and, and you tried to get into that college, but you were excluded and unwanted. Uh, from getting into that college that you wanted to get into. Uh, You started going down your career path, yet it just didn't work out the way that you wanted to, and you're excluded from that career that you really wanted. And, And as you enter into adulthood, you realize that things aren't that much different than high school. The, the The social atmosphere, there's still groups of friends and clubs and things that you want to be involved in, yet sometimes you you feel unwanted or excluded. okay, so uh, so so you're uh looking on Facebook late at night and you see these pictures of people that you know are friends and they're laughing and having a good time at a party or a restaurant, and you think to yourself, "Why wasn't I invited? They didn't call me. and you get that feeling of exclusion and and being left out and, and the truth of the matter is, though we're all adults now, we still want to sit at the cool kids table. And so we know very well that feeling of exclusion, that feeling of being unwanted and and unwelcome. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've, you've come here with that deep sinking feeling. It's sometimes hard to put a finger on it. It's hard to clearly express, but, but that's really what it is. You just often feel unwanted. You just often feel excluded and, and not welcome. Let me ask a deeper question. Have, have you ever felt unwanted by God? Have you ever felt excluded from God, from his love, from his presence, from his fellowship? You see, oftentimes, many of us have been told so many times that, that, that we're unwanted. Uh, you, we have nothing to add. That we just we're, we're, we're basically nothing. And so people have told us that so many times in our life and we transfer that over to God. And we think, well, if my spouse doesn't want me, if my friends don't want me around, if I'm excluded and unwanted here, God must feel the same way about me. So the problem is many of us have been told or shown that we're unwanted and we transfer that feeling over to God and believe that God must feel that same way. Others of us have a sea of stuff in our past, places that we've been, people that we've lied to, people that we've slept with, cheated on, websites that we have visited, horrible things that we have said and done, and we believe that God must be disappointed in us. God must want to exclude us. So today's sermon is for those who feel like God looks down and says, well, I guess I'm just stuck with you. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like sometimes God looks down and says, well, I, you know, I made you, I, I get it, but, but I guess I'm just stuck with you. So today's sermon is for those who often feel like God looks at them and they are unwanted That unless we perform, uh, unless we do all of the right things, say all the right things, act all of the right ways, then then God will not love us. Today, what we're going to see in our text is this. Are you listening? You guys with me? I know it's chilly in here. Today, what we're going to see in our text is this. No matter what other people have told you, no matter what you feel about yourself, God's affection and passion for you runs deeper than you will ever know. Because to love the unlovely is Jesus' common practice. It's what he does. It's who he is. He, he is the lover of the unlovely. Jesus comes in and he takes the unwanted and he wants them. He, he takes those who have been excluded and he includes them. This is what Jesus does. This is how Jesus is. It is a part of his very nature and his character is to love the unlovely, to include the excluded, to want the unwanted. That's what we're going to see In our text today, Jesus makes the unwanted wanted and the unwelcome welcome. Jesus loves his children. And so if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, it is so vitally, incredibly, deeply important that you have that inner feeling to know that God loves you. You've heard this message time and time again. If you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, God loves you, but many of us struggle to really believe it. We know the Bible teaches that God loves his children, yet there's that sinking feeling in us that God looks down on us and just says, well, I guess I'm stuck with you. And that's so far from the truth. Yet many of us struggle to believe that God truly loves us, that he has a deep passion and affection for us. As your pastor, I confess, I often struggle to believe that God truly loves me and has a passion and a deep affection for me. So it's important that we know this truth because it's from knowing this love that we can find the confidence to live. My my hope, my prayer this week is that the hearts of the people at Gospel Community Church would be filled with confidence, filled with confidence. You know, I have an amazing wife, I have two beautiful daughters and there's a sense in my life that I know that they love me and that love creates a sense of confidence in my life that as I go throughout my day to day, I know no matter what happens, I know that I'm coming home and that there is love there from my wife and from my daughters. And it gives me a certain sense of confidence. Maybe you've experienced that from your spouse or from your children. But friends, let me tell you, how much more confidence should we walk in and live in knowing that the God of the universe loves us? And so there's a sense of of what happens when we really start truly believing that the God of the universe loves us, confidence builds up in our hearts and, and, and we're able to walk through life with confidence and hope and joy that no matter what happens, no matter the circumstances, no matter somebody says this or does that or the car breaks down, the house blows up, who cares? I can walk through life with confidence because God loves me. So, If you're taking notes, jot this down. Let us have confidence, not in ourselves, but confidence that comes from the love that God has for us. I want confidence to well up in our hearts today. I want confidence to well up in our souls today as we we lock in and sink in to the fact that God loves us. We've been traveling through Mark um, for seven weeks now. We find ourselves in chapter two at a very interesting time. We know that Mark has been this very fast-paced narrative. And, and today we're gonna again see another part of this fast-paced narrative where, uh, where Mark is putting on display uh, the, the life and ministry of uh, our Lord Jesus. If you would, go ahead and get the text in front of you. I'm in chapter two, Mark chapter two. I'm going to start in uh, verse 13 today. We're just going to walk through this passage together and come face to face with the reality uh, that Jesus uh, is a lover of the unlovely, that Jesus makes it a habit of loving sinners, which all of us are. Verse 13. When he went out again beside the sea, all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. We find this recurring theme uh, all throughout Mark to where Jesus uh, is seen. Uh, the people come to him, crowds are flocking to him, and what does he do? He teaches. He preaches. Did Jesus have a healing ministry? Absolutely. But it was to validate the word that he was preaching. He would preach truth. He would preach the word. And people are kind of scratching their heads, wondering about it. And he'd go, all right, let me just show you. He would perform a miracle. And, and then they would uh, sort, sort of start to understand that this was a man of God, a man from God, and that his words are trustworthy and true, and you can believe it and follow it. Well, he was here teaching the crowds. He's, he's going out. He went out again beside the sea. Um, we, we saw him gathered. Remember when he was gathered in the house and, and nobody could get to him and had to tear the roof off to get to him? Well, what's happened is the crowds have grown so large that, that there isn't a building anywhere that can hold all the people. And so he's forced to go out in these open spaces and open areas out by the sea and the people come. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowds was coming to him and he was teaching them. Well, well what was he teaching them? What was the content of his message? Well, we got a... A, a glimpse of the content of the message back in Mark chapter one, verse 15. If you would just flip over and take a look at that, it says this, and saying this is what Jesus was teaching to the crowds. This is, uh, again, Mark isn't gonna lay out a big, long sermon. He, he's not gonna uh, give us a, a, essentially a transcript of Jesus' sermon. He's gonna give us uh, essentially Jesus' three points, and Jesus' three points are right here. This is the message he was teaching the crowds as they came, as they came out, verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. There it is. That's a good three-point sermon right there, right? The, the the time is fulfilled, meaning this, that, that God um, has looked throughout all of time and, and he has created a plan to come and redeem his people, that, that God has set the entirety of the universe on the trajectory of showing up and intervening in a broken system, in a broken world, and loving and saving his children. And he has decisively made steps all throughout history at particular times to intervene and step in on human history. Uh, he, he did it with Abraham. He did it with with Israel and, and bring all of this to the culmination to a particular point in time. And Jesus was saying, the time of God redeeming his people is right here, right now in my person and work. The time is fulfilled. Jesus said his second point in, in Jesus' sermon would have gone something like this. The kingdom of God is at hand, meaning I am putting on display what the kingdom is going to be like. That's what Jesus was meaning. So, so what did he do? Well, he healed people. He healed people because the kingdom of God is at hand. And in, in heaven, when the kingdom is fully consummated, there will be no sick people. There's not gonna be any sin. That's why Jesus goes around forgiving sin. He's showing them, he's putting on display what the kingdom is like. And so he can say the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And because of those those two things, now there's a therefore. This is Jesus' sermon. Again, point one, uh, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent, meaning turn away from a life of sin, turn away from a life that is lived against God's ways uh, and, and, and his will, Repent and believe on the gospel, meaning place your heart's trust on Jesus uh, and and his work on the cross to forgive you of your sins, to take away the wrath that should come to you and believe that what Jesus did on the cross was for you. That's Jesus' sermon. That's, That's what he was preaching to them. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus was a powerful proclaimer and a teacher. You have to understand this about Jesus. Jesus wasn't going around affirming what everybody said, thought, and did. He, Jesus wasn't showing up and saying, hey, whatever you want to do, I'm cool with that, right? I'm laid back, Jesus. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm hip, Jesus. I'm, I'm, hey, just whatever kind of lifestyle, whatever sexual orientation, you know, whatever you think, however you want to live, I'm just here so that you can be you. That, that's absolutely not what Jesus was doing. Jesus was an authoritative, powerful preacher and a teacher making decisive statements, saying truth, making things clear. Friends, Jesus refuses to be molded into the image of your design. You have to understand that that Jesus was going around telling people what to do. (laughs) Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus was telling people, you need to give your whole life away and devote your life to me. That's what Jesus was telling people. So, We can't make Jesus into what we want him to be. And and as we look at these gospel accounts, it's so important that we're familiar with the gospel accounts because we come face to face with the reality of who Jesus is. We come face to face with with what he said and what he did and and it becomes impossible with a true reading, with a true understanding of these gospels. It becomes impossible to impose ourselves onto him. You see, a lot of us want a a Republican Jesus. Uh Uh-oh, some, some of us want Democrat Jesus, right? For, for my redneck brothers in the room, some of us want deer hunting Jesus. You know, we, we want shotgun toting Jesus. Uh, others of us want sweet, nice Jesus, but he refuses to be molded into our own creation. What we must do is look to the gospels. We, we must come face to face with the reality of who he is and what he was saying and what he was doing and let Jesus be Jesus. So Jesus was going around He was traveling from place to place. The the crowds were flocking to him and he was teaching them. He was telling them something. He was telling them that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me, and he arose and followed him. Now, uh, get this picture in your mind. Again, Jesus is walking from place to place, and as he's going about teaching and preaching, uh, he has to pass uh, through essentially a toll booth, right? Who's been down 400, driven down 400, come up to the toll booth, you know, uh, here in these days, they, they didn't have the cone-shaped basket where you can throw your coins in and the gate comes up. There, so somebody had to sit at this booth, and as you passed by, uh, they would, you know, exact a tax on you for different things. There, there were different types of taxes, um, j- just like there are today, there are different types of taxes. And so there is a, a guy sitting uh, here at this this tax booth. Now, he is a tax collector. Uh, If you want to talk about someone in this society who was excluded, unwanted, and unwelcome, it was a tax collector. Now, uh, the truth is we understand the dislike for tax collectors. right? No one in here says, I have a burning love and passion for the IRS. I just love it so much. I am excited. Every time I get my paycheck, I just look down and I see the money that Uncle Sam has taken away, and I think joyful sacrifice. <laughs> right? No one does it. No, no one says I am so confident that you know our government is going to wisely spend my tax dollars. I am just excited to give them my. Okay, so so that's not anyone's heart. We we understand a a dislike um, for tax collectors, paying taxes and and tax collectors in particular. But uh, the problem is there is another layer of hatred for tax collectors uh, in the first century. You have to understand these were uh, Jewish men who were taking money from other Jewish people for an evil uh, Roman government who had come in and taken over. So, so there was an extra level of hatred uh, for these type people. So uh, again, we're, we're about to get, dive into some nerdy history. So just go with me for a second because it's important so you understand um, wh- what these guys were like. So here's how the tax system worked. It was, it was complicated, much like our tax system is, is complicated. What would happen is Rome would come in. They would take over an area. They would then look at that area, the people and the jobs and, and what was happening in that area, and they would estimate how much revenue from taxes they believed they would bring in. Then what they would do is they would farm that out to the locals to collect that tax uh, because the Roman government didn't want to be there on site. That the, the, I mean, Rome was huge. They couldn't be everywhere. And not to mention, again, collecting taxes didn't make Rome that popular. So they farmed it out to the locals to do it. So these, these locals or uh, sometimes they would get together and create investment firms and they would purchase that area from Rome up front. So let's say Rome takes over an area, they look at it and say, ah, we think probably we could, we could bring in 100,000 in taxes per year. Well, groups of men, groups of tax collectors, essentially uh, an investment firm would come and they would pay Rome in advance, they would make a bid and say, hey, we'll give you 100000 to collect taxes here in this area. And Rome would say, all right, great. They would take the 100000 and then what they would do to that investment firm is they would give them the authority to collect tax. Now, those groups of tax collectors or the investment firm would want to pay, you know, be able to pay Rome. They want to get their money back and some. So their goal is not just 100000 their goal is $150,000, 200000 300000 trying to double or triple uh, the amount of their income. So that's the system. Now, the, the reason I told you that is because I, I, I want you to understand about these tax collectors was this. They, tax collectors were generally a nasty group of people because they had to be experts at extortion. I mean, these were the types of guys that got you going and coming, right? I mean, if you're on the way out, oh, there's a tax to leave. And then you come back, oh, there's a tax to come back in. And they could essentially, because they had the authority of the Roman government, they could make up whatever they wanted to. You know, today there's a walking tax. Today there's a shoe tax. There's, you know, oh, you're wearing a hat. That's an extra five bucks. They could do whatever they wanted to. And so they were generally pretty nasty people uh, because they were experts at extortion. The Mishnah, uh, which is a very important uh, book in rabbinical uh, literature, essentially a Jewish holy book, says this about tax collectors. Tax collectors would make daily rounds exacting payments from men with or without their consent. Tax collectors were essentially thugs, thieves, common criminals, and they just so happened to be backed by the state. Tax collectors were seen as unclean. Uh, A good Torah-following Jew would never do business with Gentiles, and that's exactly what these tax collectors were doing. They were Jewish people who were doing business with the Roman government. They believed that to consort with anyone unclean makes you unclean. So if a tax collector even visited your house, your whole house was considered unclean. Poor Jews were forbidden to receive alms from tax collectors because their money was dirty. And then tax collectors were not allowed into the synagogue and certainly were not allowed into the temple. Tax collectors were seen as traitors. I mean, again, get that in your mind. Imagine if we were invaded by China or Russia, right? They take over America and there are some Americans who start collecting taxes for China or Russia, even though they've come in and, and killed people and taken over. I mean, we wouldn't think very highly of them, would we? So these tax collectors were seen as traitors. They were a disgrace to their family. I mean, if you became a tax collector, you were excommunicated from your family, right? No thanksgiving for you. And, and you are certainly off the Christmas list, right? That itchy sweater you were gonna get from grandma this year, forget it. You became a tax collector. Th- these guys were were totally unwelcome unwanted excluded looked down upon that's who these guys were they they realized their place in society they they realized hey we have a way to get a bunch of money um but but we're going to be excluded unwanted outcasts and and there was a sense that they felt that they felt unwanted unwanted they they felt excluded they they knew they, they knew that about themselves and I think some of us feel that way because maybe we had a parent that told us that repeatedly you're not worth anything some of us had so much pressure growing up to perform whether it be uh, your school grades whether it be athletics, whether it be just good moral behavior, there was so much pressure put on you. And when you didn't perform, well, I I guess I'm not worth anything. I'm only worth what I can produce. And so when you don't produce, then you're unwanted, unwelcome, excluded. Again, others of us just have a rough past and, and we've walked in some really dark things, some really hard things. We've been through some doors that we should have never walked through. And so again, we find ourselves believing that we are unwanted and excluded from God. That God essentially looks down, looks at us just like the society looked at the tax collectors. Unwanted, excluded, unloved, unlovable. Friends, here in this story, we are the tax collector. We are the excluded, the unwanted, and unwelcome. This is what makes what happens next in this verse astonishing. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, He said, He said to the tax collector, he's talking to the unwanted, the unlovely, the the hated, the the guy who who had had just thrown it all away for money. I mean, this is a terrible, horrible person who extorted his own countrymen. And Jesus turns to him and says, follow me. And look at the rest of the verse. And he followed him. That, that should make our heads spin around 14 times. We, we should say, what? No, wait, what? What? He asked, Jesus asked this guy to follow him, what? And he got up and followed him, wait, what? Yeah. That, that, that's what this should make us do when we understand who these guys really are. I mean, this is, this is crazy to be clear. This guy is not a seeker, He's not seeking Jesus. He, he wasn't sitting at his tax collector booth going, oh, I would, I'd like to follow Jesus. That'd be great. He was sitting at his booth extorting money from people. That, that's what he is doing there. He is not curious about God or waiting to, uh, wanting to investigate this traveling preacher. He made his choice crystal clear. Forsake all, forsake religion, forsake country, forsake family, for my new God, money. But he gets up and follows Jesus. Jesus comes to this guy and says, follow me, and he follows it. Again, remember, rabbis in those days, they didn't go out and select people to follow them. Uh, What rabbis did in those days is they built up their name and they waited for people to come to them to say, hey, I wanna follow you. But, but Jesus is different in the sense that we saw him by the sea calling uh, you know, James and John and Peter and Andrew. We, we saw him calling, Jesus taking that step to call those people. And so Jesus is hand-selecting the people that are going to follow him. Now, it's shocking enough that he hasn't chosen like scribes and Pharisees and, and the religious uh, elite of the day. It's shocking enough that he hasn't called those guys. It's even more shocking that he has called blue collar, um, hard-working fishermen to follow him. It's astonishing, shocking, crazy, uh, uh, bonkers that he has walked up to a tax collector and asked this guy has hand selected the most unlovely, the most hated. I mean, you think this society hated lepers? they hated tax collectors even more. And Jesus has hand-selected the lowest of the low, the worst of the worst to follow him and to be his disciple. And so the resounding question from the text that we must ask is, why, why does Jesus pick this guy? I mean, there's gotta be a hundred better guys around, namely someone who's not a tax collector. Why? Why does he do this? Well, the reason is because when Jesus looks at Levi, he does not see a thieving lowlife. He does not see all the people he has cheated. He sees the life of a changed disciple. Jesus sees Levi's life in, in walking in redemption, walking in freedom from the love of money. That's what Jesus sees. Jesus sees a redeemed life. He doesn't see a low life. He doesn't see the scum of the earth. So friend, when Jesus looks at you, he does not see what you did last week. Last year, He is not focused on the websites that you have gone to or the lies that you have told. Jesus sees who you can become in him. Friends, we have got to walk and live in that confidence. That, that when Jesus looks at me, and, and when I say looks, it, it, it's not as if Jesus doesn't know my past. It, 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 he's, he's God, he knows everything. It's it's not that he's unaware. But when Jesus looks at me, his focus, his intent is not on my failings. But when Jesus looks at me, his focus is on all the things that I can become in him through the power of his spirit. And so when Jesus looks at you, that's what he's thinking, that's what he's feeling, right? So, So oftentimes when I think about God thinking about me, I think, uh, there's Kirk blowing it again. I guess I'm stuck with this guy. You know, Holy Spirit, have you seen, I mean, just look at, I mean, what a miserable failure again. He's doing it again, right there. He stumbled again. He fell down again. No, no. God is saying, I know, I know who he, he can become. I know what he can do. Holy Spirit, come on, let's let's get in there. Let's let's help him. Let's let's move him forward to become all of the things that we have dreamed up for him to do. Friends, God is thinking that and believing that about you too. He he has this amazing plan for all of the things that that he wants you to do. For, For he even predestined good works for you. But before the foundation of the world, he he's thawed up, he has booby trapped your life for good works so that you stumble into them and boom, everywhere you go, you're you're stepping in these these booby traps that are just filled with good works that he has created up for you to do for him for his glory and for your joy. God loves you. He loves you. He he he's not staring at you with his arms crossed, tapping his foot, wondering when you're gonna get it together. If you're taking notes, jot this down. The source of God's love for us is his character, not our performance. Therefore, have confidence. I can be so confident God loves me. I, I can walk in confidence through my day-to-day life because it's not, God's love for me isn't based on what I do. It's not my performance. It's not, listen, it's not even how good this sermon's going, Okay. I, I am so tempted to believe that that, that, that you know, depending on how good the sermon goes, that, that is equal to how much love God has for me that day. And, and I'm sure it plays itself out in different ways in your life. That how, how much I do, how good I do, how faithful I am to read my Bible, how earnestly I pray, all of that is directly connected to how much God loves me. But that couldn't be further from the truth. God loves you because his character, his very nature is to love you. He is a lover of sinners. It's what he does. It's who he is. And so it's not based on our performance. So I can just know God loves me and I can walk throughout my day-to-day life being filled with that confidence. Amen. Verse 15. And as he reclined at a table in the house, many tax collectors, <laughs> there's, there's more of these guys, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. So they're, they're reclining at table. That, um, the, the custom was there would be a, a table and it would be very low to the ground. And, and they would kind of lay, kind of leaned up on one arm with their legs kicked out, their head kind of towards the table and, and they would reach you know, and, and eat. That, that was kind of their custom. They weren't sitting in chairs. They were kind of like laid out. That that, that's what they were doing. But but they're sharing a meal. They're they're sharing a meal. Again, we we have to pause and go, wait, what? (laughs) Jesus is there at the table laid out, like laid next to sinners and tax collectors eating a meal. Like food. Like in his hand, in it to his mouth. Like he's eating I mean. You guys know there there is a, a certain sense of intimacy that comes with sharing a meal. And, and so there's Jesus walking in this intimate relationship with tax collectors and and sinners. I mean, th- this is this is crazy. I mean, just just think about that table. There, there Jesus is sitting at a table, and, and there's a tax collector who has given his whole life to money and 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 there is uh, another man sitting across the table who uh is in a sexual relationship with another man and and there's a, a woman at the end of the table who uh who sells her body for money and and and, and there's uh, somebody over here who uh sells drugs to to children and 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 this is the people who are around the table that Jesus is sitting at the scene is Alarming and shocking. There were prostitutes, the sexually immoral gamblers, ramblers, cheats, robbers, thieves, and drunkards. You, you name it. The whole unholy crew was there and Jesus is right in the middle of them. The most shocking, astonishing, uh, crazy thing is Jesus doesn't stand at the door and demand they all change. He doesn't stand at the door and demand they all get it together. Before he goes and reclines at table with them. He just goes in. He just shares a meal with people, with people like this. Now, to be clear, he is not joining in with them or even condoning their lifestyles. He's not doing that. But he is being clear without being annoying. You ever know a Christian who is clear but's really annoying? I've been him. Jesus is giving them a truth in a way that people want to hear it. You ever been the Christian that is telling the truth, but nobody wants to hear it? I know I've been him. We know that Jesus is uh, being clear without being annoying and that he's giving truth in a way that people want to hear it because Jesus keeps getting invited to parties. That's kind of his thing. Sinners keep on wanting to hang out with him, right? You, you don't invite Debbie Downer to the party, right? You, you invite good time Gary. And, and so Jesus, <laughs> Jesus has a way of being truthful um, in a way that people want to hear it. He's being clear without, without being annoying. And so sometimes Jesus tells people to repent and other times he simply fellowships with them. Don't let only one of those be your norm, Jesus does both. He he clearly tells people, repent, stop sinning. You're blowing your life up. Don't do that. Other times, he just reclines at the table, laughs, cuts up, and shares a meal. But but we have to figure out how to do both. Oftentimes, we'd like to just stand over here, right? Look at those awful sinners doing all that terrible stuff. I mean, my cousin, can you believe her? I mean, I've told, every time I see her, I tell her, you know, she's messing her whole life up. Okay, but some of us are over here. We never say anything. We're, we're only reclining at the table. Jesus does both. Well, well, when do I know when to do which one? Well, Jesus did it through the power of the Holy Spirit and discernment. That's the hard work. It, it, it takes spiritual discernment knowing when to to call somebody to repentance and when to simply recline at table. And Jesus did the hard work of figuring out when to do that. And as he reclined at table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. This word many, obviously, I mean, it's it's twice. That's the emphasis here that, that there were a lot of them a lot of tax collectors, a lot of sinners. And so this is not a a one-time event. It's it's, it's not as if the disciples got together and said, hey man, you remember that one time Jesus called that tax collector? That was crazy, right? No, he was constantly calling tax collectors and sinners to follow him. It it was his regular practice. If, If you're taking notes, Jot this down. The calling of sinners is not the exception. It's Jesus' common practice. Jesus makes the excluded included. Jesus makes the unwanted wanted and the unwelcome welcome. It's what he does. He's just going around. Oh, there's a sinner. Hey man, you want to follow me? Oh, there's another one. Hey, you want to follow me? Come on, let's go. Let's do this thing. Stop, stop living your life that way. Come on, I've, I've got a better way. I've, I've got a place where you can find true joy, true meaning, true hope. Come on, follow me. Calling sinners constantly everywhere he was going. Jesus makes a habit of loving sinners. This is good news, friends. Are you a lowly sinner? Welcome. You're welcome here if you're a lowly sinner because we're all lowly sinners. And guess what? Jesus makes a habit of loving lowly sinners. It's who he is. It's what he does. Well, there's nothing more that religious people hate more uh, than Jesus loving lowly sinners, right? There are some religious elites that we're about to meet uh, and they are not excited that Jesus is hanging out with these sinners. Um, they, they, don't, they don't like that. Uh, they, they think, hey, if we hang out with sinners, uh, we might realize that we're sinners ourselves or uh, we might actually have to engage and help and get our hands dirty and, and, and be uncomfortable. And so let's, uh, let's see what happens next. And, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So this is, some of your translations will say the scribes and the Pharisees. Some of your translations will say the scribes of the Pharisees. In any event, these are uh, the, the religious elite. These are the guys who make up rules about the rules so that they can follow the rules because they're very important. Here's just an example. Uh, you weren't allowed to work on the Sabbath. Okay, That very clear rule, Sabbath is a day of rest. Well, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, what they said is, well, um, you're actually not allowed to take a bath on the Sabbath. Because if you take a bath, you might spill water on the floor. And if you spill water on the floor, you're going to want to clean up the water that's on the floor. And if you clean up the water that's on the floor, that's work. And you broke Sabbath. So no baths on the Sabbath, right? <laughs> the, these guys, I mean, they, that, they just made up rules about the rules about the rules. You weren't allowed to travel certain distances and you weren't allowed to carry anything uh, on the Sabbath that was heavier than a fig, right? I mean, I, where they got that measurement, I don't know. It's like, we can't carry anything heavier than, oh, I don't know, a fig? You get, Yeah, fig, fig, write it down. Boom, that, that's a new rule. Th- these guys were, were crazy that way. But remember that these guys started out in the right place. Anytime we read scribes or Pharisees, you know, especially if you've been raised in church, there's a sense in your heart where you want to go, you know, Ew, those guys, you know, The Pharisees, boo, you know, (laughs) making rules about the rules. You know, those guys are crazy. But listen, they started out with wanting to obey God wanting to follow him, wanting not to break his laws and, and to please God. That's, that's where these guys' hearts are coming from. So they set up all these rules about the rules about the rules. But what happened was they were doing all of this outward work, yet there was no inward heart change. And so, friends, today, uh, you know, we might, uh, you know, carry a King James Bible, right or or we might wear a suit to church and and we might go to Sunday school and 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 say look at all of my outward you know religious workings of course that's not the culture here the culture here is oh i carry a esv bible right have you seen the length of my beard you know uh i i wear i wear boots and jeans and plaid you know i am so holy um and so any culture, whether it's just uh, Southern Christianity culture or, or even the culture here at this church, we can have these kind of outward manifestations of holiness without any real inward heart change. And that's dangerous. That's exactly what was happening here with these scribes and uh, the Pharisees. So uh, they have a question uh, for for Jesus and his Disciples look back at it, and the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, it's it, it's interesting that how they saw that. I mean, were, like, were they walking by the house and the door was open, or was were were they eating maybe like in an open public space? We're not really sure, but but they see what Jesus is doing, and here's the question: Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now. They ask a question and their question is dead on, but their assumption is dead wrong. Right? The question is dead on. Here is a holy man of God. It was so obvious, even for the people who disliked Jesus, hated Jesus, um, it was so obvious that he was a man of God because, one, of the way and the authority that he taught, but then he was backing it up with these insane, crazy miracles. So they, they were pretty sure that this was a man of God. And so the, the question is, what business does light have with darkness? I mean, the, why is he, why would a holy man of God hang out with unclean, unwanted, excluded type people? He, he shouldn't be doing that. So, so the question is dead on, but their assumption is dead wrong their assumption is dead wrong because they assume that while Jesus is here on earth, he has the option to eat with people who are not sinners and tax collectors. <laughs> namely them. That's their assumption, right? Uh, I mean, why is he eating with those terrible sinners? Shouldn't he want to eat with us? I mean, we're not sinners. We're not like those people. We haven't done all of those terrible things right? We, we, we're, we're the holy ones. We've got it all together. We've got it figured out. They, they missed it. They assumed incorrectly. They should have assumed that Jesus can make sinners clean. That should have been, why is he eating with those people? Okay, that, that's the right question to ask. And instead of assuming uh, Jesus has the option to eat with people who aren't sinners, which he doesn't, they should have assumed, why is he eating with those people who are unclean? Oh, maybe Jesus can make them clean. Why is Jesus eating with people who are unlovely? Oh, maybe it's because Jesus loves the unlovely. (laughs) That's what they should have assumed, but their assumption was wrong, even though their question was dead on. Let's look at how this section of text closes out, verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Can you imagine a doctor, um, you know, working his way through medical school? I mean, just working his fingers down to the bone, all the textbooks and reading and writing and turning in the papers. He, he, he graduates medical school, opens his own family practice. And, and on the day that they open up, he says, yep, uh, we are not going to see any sick people at all. What? Nope, no sick people. Well, I mean, this is a doctor's office. I've opened up a family practice, but no sick people are allowed to come in. Only other doctors and people who are well. Friends, sadly, that's how many of our churches act. Yeah. Sadly, we, we have this idea that um, uh, the the church is essentially a, a country club for all the people who have it together, when in reality, the church is a hospital full of broken, wounded, hurting people who need the healing power of the gospel. Yeah. 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 So Jesus says... Uh, those who, who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, Jesus here is not suggesting that there is a righteousness apart from him. So Jesus isn't saying, well, there's two groups of people. Uh, These people over here, they're all righteous and good. And I didn't really come to help them, but these people over here are sinners and they're broken. And I I came to help them. What Jesus is doing is he is emphasizing his ministry. He is emphasizing what he is there to do, uh, which is to redeem sinners. So friends, write this down. This is the irony of the gospel. Okay. This is the irony of the gospel. People who know that they are big fat sinners stand closer to God than people who think themselves righteous because they are aware of their need for transforming grace. (laughs) People who realize they are big fat sinners are closer to God's heart. They, they realize and they see themselves for who they are. And, and the people who think they don't need Jesus, the, the people who think they've got it all together, they're actually standing further away because they don't realize their need for transformation. They don't realize their need for, for God's love and for his saving grace. They don't realize how broken and lowly they truly are. And so Jesus is saying, hey, um, if, if you're gonna be a part of this kingdom, if you're you're gonna be a part of this great grace that I have to offer, it begins with realizing your lowly state. So this is a story of God showing his love on undeserving sinners. This is Jesus showing his heart for loving the unlovely. And if he did it then, friends, he still does it today. And so if you are the unlovely, if you are the lowly, if you are the broken, guess what? God loves you. He loves you. He has a deep, burning affection and passion for you. It, 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 it's not, uh, somebody said it in pre-service meeting this morning, it, it's not that, that God just has to love you, but he also likes you, <laughs> right? He, he, has a, he has a passion and an affection for you because you're his son or you're his his daughter. Here's the great news, that, that when Jesus sets his love upon someone, um, it's because he has a plan for their life. And so this guy, Levi, we, we meet him in the other gospels. Uh, Jesus comes and, and he calls this tax collector named Levi to come follow him. And, and like many people, it, it's kind of a, a thing in the Bible, people have two names or you know a bunch of different names. Levi's other name is Matthew. Yeah, the guy who wrote the gospel of Matthew. <laughs> Jesus comes to this tax collector. He decides, I'm gonna set my love on him. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna rain down my love on him. I'm gonna pull him from where he is, and this guy becomes, this tax collector becomes an apostle. Not only does he become an apostle, but God chooses him and uses him to pin a gospel account. That's <laughs> I mean, this is the type of love that God has for us, that when God loves us, he has a plan for us. And and when he looks at us, he doesn't see all of the stuff. He sees what we can become through him. And what we see here in this text is a beautiful, beautiful picture of what is to come. Let me read Revelation 19.9. It says this, And the angel said to me, "This, the book of Revelation, um, what's happening here in the text is uh, John, uh, the one whom Jesus loved, or John the apostle, um, was visited and, and was given this message to write down about some of the things that were to come. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Friends, there's coming a day when Jesus will come back. We believe that. The Bible says it, and we believe it to be true. Jesus will return. All of the broken things will be mended and made right. All of the places in your heart that that um, ache will, will disappear. There will be no more sickness, no more sadness, no more crying, no more weeping, no more mourning. And what will happen is the kingdom will be consummated. We, we will enter into fellowship with God and we will sit down and recline at table with Jesus. And so what we see here in this picture of Jesus sitting around a table in in first century Palestine, there he is, first century Palestine sitting around a table with tax collectors and sinners reclining at table with them is a picture of what is to come. All of the people who are unwanted, excluded, unwelcome have been welcomed in by Jesus and, and gathered around a table. And friends, that is the picture of what is to come. As we enter into the new heavens and new earth and live together forever with Jesus, we will sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the unwanted, the lowly, the forgotten, all of us will be gathered around that table with Jesus where we will enjoy a beautiful, amazing banquet with Him that will never, ever end. And so friends, I want us to leave today with our hearts filled with confidence, walking throughout this whole week filled of confidence, just breathing it in. Not confidence in ourselves or our ability or our performance, but confidence, knowing that God loves me. He loves me because it's in his very nature to love the lowly, to love the unwanted, to love the excluded, to love the left out. And that's me. I'm, I'm a sinner and God loves sinners so he must love me. And friends, there's a deep sense of joy that comes with knowing that God loves me. There's a confidence that wells up in our souls knowing that God loves lowly sinners. I'm a lowly sinner, therefore God must love me. And there's a new way of living that comes with that confidence. Friends, oh, that we would see ourselves the way Jesus sees us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are astonished, shocked, taken back by your love. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. We have nothing in ourselves that merits it, yet you pour it out on us. You sit around the table with the lowly sinners and tax collectors. You sit around the table with fools like us, and you love us. And so, Lord, help us to walk in that life, that confidence, that that way of handling situations and dealing with the things that come at us in a way that is calm and at peace because hidden deep in our heart, we know we're loved by you. So it doesn't matter what the world throws at us. It could throw anything at us. We could lose our job, lose family, lose our house, lose our health. But there's a, a confidence that comes in knowing that, that you love us. And so, weld that up deep within our hearts, Lord Jesus. Father, now send your Holy Spirit here and now to do that work. I, I can't do it. I, I can't preach a good enough sermon to do that work. But I, I'm asking you uh, to send your Spirit now to do that mighty work. Even now as I'm talking, Lord Jesus, even now as I'm talking, Father, send the Spirit to well up confidence in the hearts of these people. Confidence, not in themselves, but confidence that comes from knowing that you love them. I pray and ask all of these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.